You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but if I see any one of you running at me with a cooler full of Gatorade, we're done, okay? Need to set the stage right now. Now, these guys start getting up as I say that. You guys are scaring me, okay? You always have to be on your guard here. You never know. Well, today we are continuing our series in 1 Timothy, and we're exploring what Paul's writing to Timothy, some of the uh, characteristics of a healthy church, of a people focused in on the gospel. Today, as we pick up in chapter 3, we're going to look at why character matters in the life of a leader and in a local church. Now, as we begin to look at this text, um, my son is a really big reader. If you spend time with him, you know he loves to read. He just loves book after book after book. And right now, he's been reading a book series called Percy Jackson. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a story, it's a book series about a young boy who gets caught up into this mythology of demigods. So we're looking at things like Greek gods and Egyptian gods and Norse gods and all of these things. And the story's based around the fact that this kid is in a world where these gods are real. And we're saying lowercase gods. And he has to navigate through life in this world where you have these powerful beings who just simply fall short of expectations. You see, one of the things that I think is astounding in these books is the characteristics of these lowercase gods. You see, these gods are not great beings. They're no different than the people that they ask to worship them. They're mean, they're vain, they're, they're rude. I mean, they are just not people you would look to for leadership to follow. And in this mythical world, we live in a world where might, that is being strong, means that you are right, you have power, you have authority. Now here's the truth, if we can call balls and strikes fairly. None of us want to live in a world and follow a God or a leader that is just strong. None of us want to follow someone that has no good character. None of us want to follow someone that is no different than us. Who do you want to put in position of leadership above you? Well, it's someone who's maybe a better leader than you. Someone who has character. You want to follow a God that is better than you. I'll give you a prime example of this. Have you ever worked a job that you just couldn't stand? We've all been there, right? We've worked a job where we were miserable. I would put money on it that in most of those jobs, if I was allowed to bet that you were miserable because you had a terrible leader. You were miserable because you had a boss that had terrible character. You were miserable because they continually let you down and you looked at this and you wondered, isn't there anything better? Character matters. It's a crucial component to life, to leadership, to anything you put your your mind to. Now, what does this have to do with the Bible? We've talked about Greek mythology. We've talked about character. What does this have to do with God's church? You see, God cares so much for his world and for his church that he makes good character a priority for pastors. 
He makes good character a priority for pastors. See, do you know why these gods of ancient mythologies were worshipped? It's because people were worshipping themselves through these gods and idols. They looked at them and said, one day if I get it all right, I too can sit on Mount Olympus and be God. And their God is no different than me, so of course I'm doing all right. The reason this is important is because character matters because it shows us who we worship. The character of people who would follow false gods, they're worshiping themselves. But character matters because it shows who we worship. When you see good Christ-like character, what does that mean? That means they are worshiping the living God, Jesus Christ. And if we could put all our cards on the table, what we want out of someone who is walking with us, who's caring for our soul, who's caring for us completely, is for them to be as close to Jesus as possible. Not only is that what you want, that is the expectation in the scriptures. And so if you're taking notes, I want to make sure you write down this bottom line. Character matters because it shows who we worship. Character matters because it shows who we worship. Now we're going to take a moment and look here at the biblical text. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to flip open to them. The text will be on the screen as well. But I want to take a moment and look in at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord reads, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to a noble task. We're going to hit the brakes right here. And if you're taking notes, I want you to put down your first point that God calls men who want to work. God calls men who want to work. Now, as we look at this, we want to define some terms here as we're looking at it. You've perhaps seen this word overseer, and you're thinking, well, Walter, you mentioned there's something about pastors here. So what is this word overseer? Well, I don't know what translation you're using, but you'll find some different words that are used interchangeably here in the New Testament. Overseer is just a word that is used in the New Testament to refer to pastors. As we look through the New Testament, it actually uses a couple of different words interchangeably. So these are words that you're probably familiar with, words like overseer, elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd. You've seen those as you've read through Scripture. They are different words that highlight a different aspect of pastoral ministry. You can probably understand that as you're thinking through what that means to to be a pastor, but Paul's beginning here by pointing to this reality that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to a noble task. Now, we've talked through the reality of, okay, that's a word for pastors. What is Paul laying out here for Timothy in the next few chapters? Well, as Paul's been dealing with the struggles they've had with false teachings, with a lack of a focus on the gospel, Paul is trying to recenter them on the gospel, focus in on what God is doing in his world. And as he does this, he works through this to show them how the gospel then gives birth to healthy leaders. He's talking through two offices in the local church. There are really two roles we see in the New Testament that Paul is going to describe here. He says there's pastors, 
elders, de- you know, whatever you want to put in there, whatever language you're using. And then there's deacons. They are two different offices. They're not to be confused. Every church we look at in the New Testament is referred to having multiple pastors and having deacons. That's the standard in the New Testament church. Now, Paul gets into this and he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to a noble task. Well, let's deal with the elephant in the pew, so to speak. He. As we look at the scriptures, as Paul would affirm, the only people that are qualified for the office of pastor slash elder are men. Paul's just kind of talked through in the preceding chapter, and I encourage you to go back to listen to Pastor Brian's sermon if you have not listened to it. But the responsibility he gives for preaching, for teaching, for shepherding the family of God is to men. They are to serve as under-shepherds in the church in a pastoral role. Now, that does not mean there are not many roles for women to fulfill in the local church. We believe that women have much to offer to the local church in a variety of roles. The only role that is off limits that Paul's talking about is pastor. You cannot be a pastor if you're a lady. I hope that doesn't break your heart. But as we look at this, there are many roles for women to play in the local church. Now, I have to be clear here, just as we're looking at this, some would assume as they study this passage that just being a man is enough to be qualified to be a pastor. And let's be clear, no, that is not good enough. The truth is that, yes, that is one of the qualifications, but just because you are a man does not mean you are called or qualified to be a pastor. You must be qualified through this search of character and calling. Now, certainly, if any of our men were to express interest in pastoral ministry, we would explore that. Just as Zach has, we are doing that with him. But just because you're a man, it does not mean you are qualified to be a pastor. I think we know that as we look at the long list of moral failures by pastors in our world, right? Simply having the appropriate anatomy does not make you a man of God. Now, as Paul's writing this, he's speaking about this idea of a calling. He says if you aspire to this office, you're desiring a noble task. What what is this calling that Paul's referencing that he's pointing us to? You see, Paul is writing about God's intent here. That the man would have a calling to the work of of a pastor, not just a position. Paul's explanation is that a man would have a call to the work of ministry within the local church. This calling is one that leaves a man devoted to the work of shepherding souls for the good of the church and the glory of God. You see, this calling is one that begins within a man, but must be affirmed by a local church. A man can initiate this conversation and say, I feel like the Lord may be calling me to this. But a church body must affirm this. He's not called by God unless a church sees the gifts of God, the character of Christ being worked out in their lives. This work, this noble task Paul's referring to, is the real work of ministry. And I want to be clear of this reality that There are some people who enter into the ministry because they want power. 
They want to be in charge of things. They want to have authority. Those men should not be in ministry. There are people who enter ministry because they failed at everything else and they think that this is the next thing. Those men should not be in ministry. Charles Spurgeon actually writes in his Lectures to My Students, a book he writes to ministry students, he says that if you can do anything else in life but the work of ministry, if you can be satisfied with anything else, go do that because this is too hard for you to mess around. This is too important for you to casually come in and say, I think I'd like to preach. No, this is a weighty task that involves caring for the very souls of God's creation. Yes, a pastor will preach and they will lead and they will do many things, but the goal, the point of this entire work is to care for the souls that God has entrusted to them. Yes, we will make decisions about things like budgets, committees, and just all these things that are important for the business of the church. But the point of these isn't healthy organizational design. The point of all these decisions is that people would see their lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. That's why everything you find in a church bylaws and constitution is supposed to be there to lead people to Jesus, not keep you from doing things. That's the goal of everything we do is so that people would know Jesus lives. As Pastor Brian said last week, we, that is pastors, we will give an account of the work of our ministry before the Lord. That Pastor Brian and myself, that we are held accountable to the Lord for your souls. I want you to think about that for a moment. That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? Frankly, as I looked at this passage, it really led me to some apprehension of even preaching on this today. Because here I am, an imperfect man of God, trying to lay out what it looks like and have to be held accountable to this word. This is a weighty task. But the real work of the Lord is focused on honoring God by caring for souls. This calling Paul's writing about, this is the one work that pastors do. It's what Paul writes about in Ephesians 4.11, where he says that we, pastors, are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I don't know if you know this, but as you look at the New Testament, the expectation that Paul and the writers of the New Testament lay out is that everybody is in ministry. Everybody is called to gospel ministry. Wherever you live, work, and worship, you are an image bearer of Christ Jesus in that place, proclaiming a message of hope and reconciliation to a lost and dying world. You are a disciple who has been sent out to make disciples. Everybody's called to that. Yet, even as we study the New Testament, as we look at the scriptures, there are some of us who have an additional calling on their lives. They have this call to vocational or gospel ministry. Now, if we want to call balls and strikes as we consider 
the fact that character shows what we worship. You've seen a lot of pastors in your life in a local church, whether it's here and other churches, and you probably have your opinions about what those men worship. And it's easy to see sometimes, I think. You know, when you see people who are seeking nothing but power and authority over others, that tells you something about what they worship. When you see people who are using their power and authority for ill or evil, it's easy to see what they're worshiping. When you see people whose sole goal is their advancement, it's easy to see what they're worshiping. But you also see people working with humility and gentleness, who when the chips are down, they're there with you, who when there are struggles to be had, they're bearing them with you. You see, that first group we spoke about, they worship themselves. They're here because they think they need something. They need something out of power and authority. They're here because they're looking for satisfaction. But that first group, they worship themselves because they are trying to grab all that they can in this life. But that second group, they worship God. They sacrifice so that you might have what you need. They give generously so that you might be cared for. They humbly, graciously walk with you through good times and bad. I say this not because we're looking for praise or honor here, but just simply to tell you the truth of God's word. That the calling to the pastoral position is a call to work. It's a call to serve. And I will tell you, as long as Pastor Brian and myself are here, there will not, there will never be a pastor who is called to serve in this church who is not here to work and to disciple and to shepherd. That is our commitment to you. That is how valuable we find the work of the ministry. Because the goal is to care for the hearts, minds, and souls of people. Now, Paul, lay, Paul lays out this calling. He's laying out this calling. He wants us to see what it means to initially begin to explore this calling. And he spends the next six verses laying out the qualifications of this call. He's saying, one, there must be an internal stirring that is affirmed by a church. But two, that church and everybody around them better make sure that they have Christ-like character. That takes us to our next point, that God calls men who have Christ-like character. God calls men who have Christ-like character. I want to read verses 2 through 7 for us. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover for money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. God calls men who have Christ-like character. Paul is simply trying to seek out and explain what qualifies a man to serve in ministry. For most of us, if we were making this list, we would probably start with things like, he's a good preacher, he's a good leader, he's got a great vision for the church, he brings lots of experience. I mean, you could make this laundry list of things, and I, I want to say that those skills, those competencies, those are good, those are healthy, right? Paul couldn't care less about those things. Paul doesn't care if you've got those skills or experience. Paul's concern is that you have Christ-like character. He's laying out these qualifications, and he's saying that you must look at the character of men when they express a call to ministry. He understands this reality that, yes, these skills are necessary for the work of ministry. You have to know a budget. You have to know how to preach. You have to be able to do these things. But skills can be taught and character cannot. For character, you either have it or you don't. I can't teach the character to you. You either love Jesus and he's transforming your life or you hate Jesus and you're an enemy of God. I can't fix that for you. I can teach you how to preach. I can teach you how to make a disciple. I can teach you how to balance a budget. That's easy. But I can't teach character. I cannot change character. And so Paul says that, Timothy, these problems you have in your church will be resolved if you appoint men who have godly character. Because if they have godly character, they're in love with the gospel of Lord Jesus and things will be okay. They may not be the most eloquent speaker. They may not be the best leader. They may not be a financial guru. But none of that matters because they'll love Jesus, they'll love you, and you'll get the important things right. You want to major in the major things. And that's what Paul is laying out. As we look at these qualifications, it's interesting that there are maybe two skills we see in here. Just two. Paul's maybe concerned about. One is able to teach. And potentially, if you want to call it a skill, is managing your household as one as well. We'll talk more about those in a moment. We're going to give very minimal thought to skills because they aren't that important. What is important is character. Now, what are these general qualifications? Well, Paul's looking for men who are involved in a lifelong pursuit of holiness. People whose goal and desire is to be more like Jesus. He's not calling for perfection. Hello, I mean, look at who he's getting to work with. But he's calling for a pursuit of holiness, that they would desire to be more like Jesus every day. I think this leads us to a natural question. What what is holiness supposed to look like in a Christian? What is holiness supposed to look like in our lives? 
I mean, sometimes I think with this idea of holiness, we think it's something mystical or unknown. You know, we say that, hey, maybe we'll know it when we see it. And Paul lays out what holiness looks like. He defines it for us in these verses because it's the very type of person, the man he is looking for. If you want to know what holiness looks like, look at these verses. Holiness looks like a man who's free from his sins, who's free from his sins and habits that would lay him open to public criticism. He's the husband of one wife and his marriage is pure. He's sober-minded. He's got an awakeful, alert mind. He's got mastery over his natural reactions. He doesn't just fly off the handle when conflict comes. He's got a little bit of self-control. He's respectable. He lives a life that bears up to examination. He's hospitable. He's someone that welcomes brothers and sisters, strangers and sojourners into his home. He's not addicted to much wine. He's free from enslavement to alcohol, drugs, or any other type of stimulant. He's not given to arguments. He's not quick-tempered. He's a person who characterizes moderation, healthy dialogue. He's gentle. He's meek. He's humble. He's trusted and respected. He's free from the love of money. He doesn't desire dishonest gain. He loves God and he uses things. Not he loves things and uses God. He loves God and uses things. He's spiritually mature. He's got a good reputation with non-Christians and with other churches. This is what holiness looks like. And I need to add this caveat, a much-needed one, I I think. One, as I laid out these characteristics of holiness, and you're going to get the notes, so like if you didn't catch something, you're good. Every time I said this, I said he's, because we're referring to the office of pastor. But the reality is that these are baseline expectations for every Christian who has ever lived, male or female. What Paul is asking for is not that these men are perfect, but that they are examples of these things in your midst. Paul is saying everybody has to wear the uniform, but only some of y'all are going to get to play the game. Everybody's expected to be like this. And if we would take a step back, we have known people who say that they are Christians, but do not display these characteristics. What does that mean? Well, there's a lack of holiness. There's a lack of faithfulness in their lives. When you see that over a long time, that begins to tell you that it's not a lack of faithfulness or holiness. It's a lack of care and concern about the gospel. Now, as we look at this, this is the baseline expectation for all believers. Because it's very easy to throw a few punches at those in leadership and say, ha, you fall short. Every one of us has messed up this list. Every one of us. We have all fallen short in every one of these ways. 
If we had a list of our sins to display in front of us, my gosh, how much paper would we need? Paul's not arguing for perfection. He's arguing for these men that you would call as pastors to serve as examples of these traits. I've got to let you in on a little secret. Pastors aren't perfect. I'm shocked that you didn't know that already. We will fail you in some of these ways. We're just going to fall short. Sometimes we'll be a little argumentative. Sometimes we'll be a little troublesome. Sometimes we won't respond to your phone call or text quickly enough. It's going to happen. If we haven't let you down yet, we are going to let you down at some point. So I'm just trying to soften the blow for you to know that we do not have it all together. But what I hope and pray is that Pastor Brian and I, that Zach is a pastoral resident, are examples of godly character. We don't have it all together. We'll never claim that. What I hope is that you look at your, our lives and say, I could be like them. I could be like them because they're like Jesus. This is what holiness is. Paul's saying, if you look for this in a man that you're considering for pastoral ministry, you will not be disappointed. These are the qualifications of a pastor slash elder. God desires godly character above all else. Now, I told you we'd come back to the skills, and frankly, we're, we're going to be very brief on these because they're not as important as character. Yes, men who feel a call of gospel ministry, they should be skilled in maybe two different ways. First, they have to be able to teach. That's non-negotiable. What does this able to teach mean? He's not referring to preaching. He's referring to disciple making. That if you're going to call a man to a pastoral role, they should have a history of making disciples. They should be a spiritual father many times over. They should maybe be a spiritual grandfather. That they should have a track record of being able to teach people about what it means to follow Jesus, to be changed by him, and to be on mission with him. That is what it means to be able to teach. Now, certainly, it is helpful to be able to preach. And it is helpful to be able to preach a sermon that is engaging, that is good, that is biblical. But the truth is, Paul's not really concerned about that. He just simply says... Are they a disciple-making disciple? Can you see the Great Commission being fulfilled in their lives? The answer is yes, and they check that box. They have met the skills requirement. The second, if you can call it a skill, and I think it can be considered one, is that they should manage their household well. Jonathan Edwards called the pastor's home his family the little church. Simply put, if he cannot shepherd his wife and his children, if he can't disciple his wife and children, then he cannot do this for our local church. If he can't encourage and edify his wife and children, he can't do that as a pastor. He's just not got the ability to do it. I, I simply say that this includes all areas of how he leads 
his family, because godliness in the church begins at home. Godliness in the church begins at home. Who you are at home is ultimately what you're going to show at church, in the worship gatherings, in the small groups. And if you cannot shepherd your family well, then you cannot shepherd the church well. That's all that Paul has to say about those skills. That's all he's concerned with. That you're able to teach and make disciples and that you can love, encourage, and guide your wife and children well. That doesn't sound like most job descriptions we post for pastors, does it? And therein lies our problem. Now, as we've walked through this today, you've been gracious to let me explain some things and you might be wondering, well, Walter, that was really well-researched and that was really good, but what on earth does that have to do with me today? Some of you are honest and give me the head nod. That's okay. If you're here as a Christian, I, I believe this is important to you because the type of leaders that you call to serve a local church determines your trajectory. If you call someone who doesn't have godly character your church will struggle. If you call someone who has godly character, your church might succeed. Now, there are no promises in this equation, but simply put, if you're going to try and put the odds in your favor, you want someone who is a godly leader. You probably know this, but you're still maybe wondering why Paul and myself have spent so much time talking about that. Well, you're not here alone as a Christian because all of our non-Christian friends are asking the same thing. They're not even sure about Christianity. So why do they care about leadership of the church? Why does any of this matter? Well, I want to speak to Christians, to non-Christians, wherever you're at in your journey. This matters. This matters to both groups because this is an example of God's love and witness to you. I want you to think about this. Lots of people complain that the church is full of hypocrites. I mean, if we're, if we're honest, I mean, that's what people bring an argument to the table. The church is full of people who don't live like Jesus. And whether that's true or not, God believes that it is so important for his church that the very people who lead and shepherd this church could not be called hypocrites. They are people who are godly people who you can see it. The things that they say with their lips are backed up with their lives. They're not perfect, but they're striving to be like Jesus. This is a witness, a display of God's love for every one of us. You see, God's most treasured possession in this world is his church. And who does he entrust his church to? pastors and shepherds who can be called anything, but they cannot be called hypocrites. God's most treasured, priceless possession, he entrusts to people who can't be condemned by the world. You see, this this is a display of his love for his people and for his church. He says, I love you so much, I want the very best to lead you, serve you, and care for you. Would you ask for anything yet less than that? 
No. See, this display, this message, this is important to us because he's calling men who display a character that can only come from above. It can only come from God. This love and this message is intended to show us the problem in our lives is not those that we would call hypocrites. The problem in our lives is found within us. It's our sin. And it is our sin that leads us to desire to worship ourselves and reject God. This is the story of humanity since creation. God created Adam and Eve in the garden. Relationships were good. And then they rejected God because they wanted to be like God. That brought sin into our world and everything has been broken and falling apart since then. But way back in the garden of of Eden with with Adam and Eve in Genesis, God made a promise that one day he was going to send someone to make all things right. And that someone's name is Jesus. Jesus came and he lived the life that we could not. He lived a perfect life. That he bore the weight of sin and shame on our behalf upon the cross, dying an innocent man so that guilty people could have life. That's you and I. We're guilty. And then he rose from the grave after three days, showing he has power over life, death, and everything in between. And has promised that he is going to one day restore all things back to perfection. He will end sin and death. He will kill Satan. And he will rule with his people forever. This is the gospel that Jesus has promised to us. This is the good news that you and I have. But it's only good news if we call upon Jesus, repenting of our sins, trusting him as our Lord and Savior. This takes me back to our bottom line. Character matters because it shows who we worship. My question for you today is, who are you worshiping? This time I'm going to take a moment to pray for us and you'll have some time to silently pray. Our worship team is going to come forward and continue to lead us and worship through music. But I would encourage you, I would call you today to look upon your heart and simply ask, who is it you're worshiping? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? If it's yourself, you desperately need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we come to you, we're grateful for this picture of the gospel in our lives, that you would put such a high bar on calling men into pastoral ministry. We're thankful for this reality that you care so much for your church that you only want the godliest people to lead it and to serve it. Lord, this is a weighty task, a challenging task to consider, but Father, we are grateful that you value the bridegroom, the church that much. It shows that you love us 
to the point of the cross. It shows that you love us so much that you want only the very best for your people. And so, Father, as we consider this love, we are having to deal with the reality that we have sinned and fallen short. We've made mistakes, Lord. And as we look to the scriptures, we know that the wages of sin is death. Death comes to those who are broken and beaten by sin. The story doesn't have to end there, Lord, because Jesus came to rescue those who were in their sin. He came to seek and save the lost so that we might call him brother. And that we could look to his father and call God father. Lord, this is a beautiful message of adoption, of bringing us into this family, of redeeming us by the free gift of grace given to us by Jesus. But the only way we're adopted, the only way we receive this free gift of grace is by repenting of our sins, turning away from them, and looking to Jesus and calling him Lord and Savior. So Father, today, if there's anyone here, anyone watching online who doesn't trust in you as their Lord and Savior, would today be the day that they will call upon you? For those of us that are found in you, Jesus, may you soften our hearts so that we could repent of our sins and continue to see you as our Savior and Lord. Father, as we go into this time of worship through song, would you be with us? Would you allow the Spirit to move in our hearts and minds and transform us by the power of the gospel? Lord, we're grateful for you. We're thankful for what you're doing. We pray these things in your name. Amen.